You are now listening to the May 20th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have the Fruit of the Spirit, Sermon, and Equipping the Saints. First, let's start with the Fruit of the Spirit. Hello, Heart and Soul Gospel Ministry listeners. This is Terry Park with Fruit of the Spirit. In this program, we have been sharing the characteristics of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Today, in our eighth episode, we are going to meditate on goodness as found in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. Goodness means being kind, virtuous, and gentle. When we look back on our lives and think about all the grace we have received from the Lord, we are reminded of God's gentleness and His loving kindness. When I think about God's goodness, it engulfs me as I am floating on the sea of God's goodness. Even then, I cannot fathom the width, depth, or height of His goodness. All my worries and troubles disappear while I am in the middle of the sea of the Lord's goodness. In short, the Lord's goodness overwhelms me. God is good. That is why goodness contains loving kindness in its meaning is a characteristic that belongs to God. In Luke chapter 18, a ruler asked Jesus a question, calling him good teacher. But Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus emphasized that God alone is good, but did not rebuke the ruler who called Jesus good. Jesus was teaching that absolute goodness or gentleness is a characteristic that only belongs to God. Perhaps not in an absolute sense, but in a relative sense, we may use the word good when we characterize those believers who are filled with the Holy Spirit. Someone being good in this sense would be exhibiting one aspect of the external characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit. Even if we are not accepted or welcomed by people, when we do our best to live our lives led by the Spirit, it will show externally as evidence that we are living virtuous lives before God. Also, when we walk by the Spirit in goodness, we will not carry out the desires of our flesh, and this will be pleasing to God. While we may sometimes fail, the Holy Spirit will guide us to do good. A deviant teaching came into the Galatian church and corrupted the gospel, causing the community to fall into chaos and evil. The only way to correct it was going back to the gospel. What must we do to live a life of goodness that would be pleasing to God even though the sinful nature still remains in us? The only way to hold on to Jesus ever so tight who is the gospel. We must remember that we will fall under evil's ruling when we are disobedient to Jesus Christ. The opposite of goodness is evil. We must be careful with evil that appears in various forms in our lives. When we search within our heart, we often find it has two forces. One that wants to follow the Lord and remain good, and another that is evil, desiring bad things for others, and when that happens, actually enjoying the struggles of other people. Further, there are some forms of evil that is not evident externally, and God warned us about them very sternly. Jesus scolded the hypocritical Pharisees by calling them a whitewashed tomb who distorted God's law to suit their own standards 
and kept them selectively only in parts. They thought they were holy while they despised God by despising the poor and troubled. We could deceive ourselves and others, but we can never deceive God. Hypocrisy starts with an evil attention of making ourselves to look better than who we actually are. When we live the life of a hypocrite, we become blinded to believing the false life of a hypocrite to be real to the point that we cannot discern goodness from sinfulness. Often, this leads to falling even deeper into sin. The Bible teaches us in several places that God hates the sin of pretending to be holy by raising oneself high and pretending to be good. Without fail, evil will draw near when we move away from Jesus Christ. However, when we meditate on God's Word and follow the Holy Spirit's guidance to obey Jesus, then we will be able to display the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I hope we will have all these characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit abundantly in our lives. Yeah. Hey.
Next is a sermon by Pastor Malachi Tresler of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix. Today's topic is, Because of Him Who Calls. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Malachi. We're getting into some of the challenging portions of Romans. Romans 9. Paul is going to make the point in today's passage that the fact that not everyone from the nation of Israel is saved, that does not mean that God is a failure. His word is not a failure. God didn't promise to save everyone. Only some of humanity, God's elect, as he called them in Romans 8.33, they will be rescued from hell and sin and reconciled to God to be in his presence forever. And that caused Paul, as we saw last week in verses 1 through 5, it caused him great sorrow, unceasing anguish. Paul's asking why. Why aren't all of Israel saved? And we ask the same question. We ask why. Why are some elect and some not? What's the distinction between those who are saved and those who are not? What is the basis of God's election? Here are the two options, I believe. God either chose some on his own initiative based purely on the riches of his grace, or he chose some because he knew that they first would choose him. Either God elects people to salvation based on the the condition of their foreseen faith, or he elects some unconditionally by his pure goodness without any consideration of their works. We'll hope to think through that with Paul this morning as we're tracking along with the argument that he's been making about the promises of God and salvation. So he's just made these huge, explosive promises at the end of chapter 8 about how God's elect definitely will be justified. It's that golden chain of redemption we talked about in May that we find there at the end of chapter 8. 
Okay, well, if he's made these big promises, his audience would be thinking, okay, Paul, if God's promises to his elect are unstoppable, why are so many of them, God's elect nation, Israel, why are they not embracing the gospel? Were they not God's elect? What about the promises that God made to them in the Old Testament? Has God's word to them failed? Our big idea, God's just purposes and promises in salvation do not fail. God's just purposes and promises regarding salvation do not fail. Here's our outline, just two points. First, we must be clear on God's promises. We'll get that from verse 6. And then second, God did not promise salvation for everyone. We see that in verses 4 through uh, 13, the end of the passage. And then we're going to think with Paul together through the Old Testament examples that he gives us first. In verse 6 in particular, we must be clear on God's promises. Let me read just verse 6 for us again. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. We can't hold God to account for something he didn't promise to do. We cannot try to hold God to account for something he never promised to do. Again, just trying to follow the logic of Paul's train of thought here. Romans 8 lays out these massive claims to God's elective love being unstoppable. But that naturally then leads to questions about God's promises to his elect people in the Old Testament, Israel. Hopefully you know that God called Israel his chosen people. Here are just a few examples of that. Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 8. For you, O Israel, are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Why? It was not because you were more in number than the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 14 to 15. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. And of course, we went through uh, chapters uh, 40 through 55 of Isaiah throughout this summer. Those chapters are sort of radiating in the background of all of this stuff that Paul is talking about in Romans 8 through 11, at least. Isaiah is the counter melody to the song that Paul is singing here in Romans. So it's really helpful to know what's going on there in Isaiah. It's formative to Paul's writing uh, here. Israel is called God's chosen people there in the book of Isaiah as well. 41 verse 8. But you, O Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. Over and over again, throughout even just Isaiah, I've called you by my name. You are mine. I will be with you. You are precious in my eyes. Now, if God made these promises to Israel that we understand now to have been fulfilled in the person and work of the suffering servant, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and yet the people to whom those promises were made aren't all saved. Well, hold on, Paul says. God never promised to save all of ethnic Israel. 
We read elsewhere in Isaiah, chapter 10, verse 22. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, there's a bunch of them, only a remnant of them will return. A remnant is a small remaining quantity of something. So in other words, only some of Israel would remain faithful throughout the exile and would be restored. Isaiah 6, uh, because of, uh, of Israel's sin, Isaiah 6, the prophet, says because of their sin, their land is going to be utterly destroyed and Israel would be exiled from the land. Only a tenth of them would remain. This is Isaiah chapter 6. And he says in chapter 6, verse 13 in particular, only a holy seed or a selected offspring would remain. In other words, not all who physically descended from the line of Israel, which is one of Jacob's names, Jacob has renamed Israel, not all who are descended from the line of Israel were promised salvation. That's what he says in verse 6. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. This verse is key to understand the rest of Romans 9 through 11. Paul uses the word Israel in at least two different ways uh, in this passage, but in this particular verse in two distinct ways. Not all physical Israelites are a part of the faithful, believing remnant of Israel. This is what it means that not all Israel, not all who are from Israel are Israel. And then Paul's going to go on to illustrate that in the following verses, but let's just think about what this means for us uh, even momentarily. Maybe you're thinking, I don't know how or why this has anything to do with me. The Old Testament seems so distant, it's so confusing. Why does all this matter? Well, it matters to you and I because the God of Israel is the same God of the church. God has not changed. God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. It's the same God right now. So if his promises that he made to Israel have failed, how would you and I in the year 2022 have any assurance that the amazing promises that he lays out at the end of Romans 8 will be fulfilled? All those verses about our calling, our adoption, our justification and glorification, and the surety and the assurance of that. It's important to know that God's promises do not fail, but it's also important to know that we cannot try to hold God to account for something he never promised to do. He never promised to save all of physical, ethnic Israel. Now, have you ever grown bitter or disengaged from God because you think that he let you down somehow. When we start to think that we are owed something based on what we've done, we really begin to lose sight of the whole concept of grace. So so many of the songs we sang this morning were focused around the concept of grace and grace alone. So let's think more about that in the next verses. Point two, God did not promise salvation for everyone. From verses seven to 13, let me just read that. Uh, well, before we get in there, <clears throat> introductory note. Paul, what he's doing here in these next verses is quoting the Old Testament over and over again, using two different illustrations, grounding his argument in history and scripture. He uses two examples of how God didn't promise blessing to everyone who came from Abraham. So he brings up Isaac, and he alludes to Ishmael, and then he compares Jacob and Esau. First, though, let's look at, at Isaac 2a. 
The children of promise were called through Isaac, not Ishmael. Verses 7 through 9, I'll just read those again. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. Isaac was the child of promise, not Ishmael. Isaac was the child of promise, not Ishmael. We all know that Father Abraham stands at the beginning of the history of Israel. God chose him out of the nations. He promised to bless him, to make him a blessing to the other nations, to provide him land, to make him fruitful, to give him numerous offspring. But Abraham and his wife Sarah were starting to get a little bit old. They started to think, well, maybe God forgot about those promises. So they came up with the idea that Abraham could just have a child with their their servant, Hagar. That way, Abraham would still have children like God promised. And so Abraham fathered a child with Hagar named Ishmael. But later, God said to Abraham, No, Sarah, your wife is going to become pregnant, and you should call this child that you're going to have Isaac. Even though Sarah was well past childbearing age, she was going to have a child. So in the sense, Isaac's birth was going to be miraculous or supernatural. A birth according to God's promise, not according to the will of man. And God would establish his covenantal love with Isaac and his offspring after him. Now Ishmael would be blessed physically. We can read more about the the history of the promises that God did give to Ishmael. But God would establish his covenant love only with Isaac, not Ishmael. This is Genesis chapters 17 and 18. Ishmael was born of the will of man. Isaac was born of the will of God. So here you have an example of a child of Abraham who does not belong to God's chosen people. This is the example that Paul is laying out for us. Physically, Ishmael was a child of Abraham, yet he was not a child according to the promise that God had given Chapters 9 through 11 of Romans deal with some difficult topics. And there are some different interpretations of what Paul is arguing for here. Some will say that Paul has moved on from talking about individual salvation to talking now about corporate salvation. So at the end of chapter 8, he was talking about the individual calling and justification, but then he changes the topic to talk about no longer individuals, but nations, corporate election here. They see a huge shift between the conversation in chapter 8 and chapter 9. But that doesn't seem to do justice to the flow of Paul's argument here. It's worth noting, chapter 9, verse 7, he writes, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. That's what the ESV translation says. The word behind, named there in the original, is actually called. It's literally called. Through Isaac shall your offspring be called. It's the same word that comes up just a few verses before at the end of Romans 8, 28 and 30. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Same word. And in 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. For those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. If you remember again, from May, we talked about that golden chain of salvation from those verses. Those whom he calls, 
He also justifies. It's the same language. It's the same thing. So just like in 9, Romans 9, verse 11, God called Jacob not according to works so that his purpose of election might continue. So I just want you to notice the continuity between chapter 8 and chapter 9 here. This is the same argument that he's making here. It seems best to recognize that this passage isn't only talking about electing nations for earthly blessings. It seems that he's writing about individuals within Israel who aren't saved. And he's trying to explain why that's the case. Well, you might say, well, of course Ishmael's not a part of the blessed uh, covenant community. We already know that. Nobody ever thought that Ishmael was part of Israel. But what about the rest of the line of Isaac? Great, well, Paul goes there next to be. The children of promise were called through Jacob and not Esau. Through Jacob, not Esau. Verses 10 through 13 again. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Jacob was the child of promise, not Esau, is what we see in these verses. Jacob was the child of promise and not Esau. Maybe this visual will help you. We start out with Father Abraham, who had some sons. There's Ishmael and Isaac. And then even beyond that, we have Esau and Jacob. Okay? We're just trying to explain all those who descend physically from Abraham, the ones that are kind of grayed out, not a part of the blessings. This is visually what Paul is telling us here. Not only so, in verse 10 of our ESV translation, is is more like not only that, or like here's actually a, a, a stronger argument than that first one that I just gave to you. This is different because Jacob and Esau were both children of Isaac, who was the child of promise. And yet, God only chose Jacob to continue the line of blessing rather than through Esau. They were both born to the same parents. They were twins. And Esau was actually born first. This is important. It was before they were born and had done nothing either good or bad that God set his love upon Jacob and hated Esau. This seems counterintuitive because Esau is born first. Esau was the firstborn. He should have gotten the blessing. And yet, God extended his covenantal love to Jacob and not to Esau. This is a quotation from the first chapter of the book of Malachi. Uh, The prophet Malachi there at the end of the Old Testament was dealing with the relationship between the nations. He was talking about Israel and Edom. This is helpful to keep in mind. Jacob was going to be renamed Israel. So those who descend from Jacob are going to be called the nation of Israel. And yet those who descended from the line of Esau are called the Edomites. Those are the people that Malachi is talking about in chapter 1. And so the prophet is telling them that God is going to defend Israel, his chosen people, by destroying the Edomites, whom he did not set his covenant love upon. But Paul draws on that verse, that historical context, he pulls that that verse in here in Romans 9 to illustrate his point here in Romans that God is able to freely choose who he wants to bless. 
God is able to freely choose who he wants to bless. Now, if you're like most people, you might be struck by what is said here. God hated Esau. We read similar things like this elsewhere, like in Psalm 5, 5, it says God hates all evildoers. But it's actually a little more complicated here in, in Romans because Paul is very explicit that God's purpose of election here was not based on anything good or bad that either of them had done. Esau hadn't committed actual sin yet. He wasn't an evildoer in that sense. And yet, God hated him. It seems best to understand God hating Esau to mean that we, he, he withheld his covenantal love from him. As we know with Ishmael, God does still bless Esau in a physical way. Esau lived a pretty good, good life. God gave him children and possessions and livestock. But God did not extend his saving covenantal love to Esau. He rejected him. And that can be tough to swallow. Some have tried to soften this by saying that the word hate here simply means that he loved Esau less than Jacob. But there is a way to say, Esau I loved less, both in Greek and in Hebrew, and that's not what Scripture says. So how do we come to terms with what it actually says? Well, we have to start by remembering that God is different from us. So, so don't picture up a picture of like a a red-faced human who's flown off the handle, angry, passionate hatred. This hatred is not a passion that was aroused by anything outside of God himself. But I think it's useful, obviously scripture uses it, as an accurate way to describe his disposition towards Esau. This hatred is in no way sinful, like human hatred so often is in our experience. As with all God is and does, his hatred and his love are pure and holy and undefiled. Now you might think, well, that sounds pretty arbitrary. It sounds unjust to choose some for salvation and not others, not based on their works, but only based on his own purposes. And so some want to pull, that makes you uncomfortable, and some just want to pull away from that discomfort and say, well, I find it distasteful for God to do that, and so I need to find a different way to read this or to explain this. But just as in every other passage, we need to bring ourselves under God's authority, not trying to assert our authority over his word. And this may be uncomfortable. It actually should be, if you rightly understand it. But it is what it says. We must let God's word speak to it to us as it does, not as we would prefer. If we bring into the Bible, in our reading of the Bible, an assumption that God is somehow obligated to extend his saving love to everyone in the exact same way, we're going to be frustrated by what we find in the Bible. This assumption might be built on an idea that, by default, humanity comes into the world as morally neutral beings. We're just sort of innocent, blank slates. And God then is naturally pleased with us, by default. It's the starting point. But Ephesians 2.3, for example, says that we are by nature children of wrath. After our fall in Adam... After the fall and before redemption in Christ, humanity's default position is to sit under the just judgment of God. Remember what Jesus says in John 3.16 and following. John 3.16 all the way through 18. I'll read that for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. 
Now listen to this. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Jesus affirms this again in verse 36 of John 3. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Robert Haldane was a Scottish preacher and commentator from the 1800s, and he summed up what we find here well. So I'll just show you what he said. Quote, In loving Jacob, God showed him unmerited favor and acted toward him in mercy. And in hating Esau, he showed him no favor, who was entitled to none, and acted according to justice. We are tempted to think that God would only be just if he showed both his love to Jacob and Esau in equal, symmetrical ways. But the reality is that if God gave justice equally to both parties here, he would have hated both. That's the default position. God is not obligated to love rebellious creatures. That's why when God does extend his unassailable, undefeatable love that we read about in the end of Romans 8, it's called grace. It is undeserved in any way. The funeral ritual of the Habsburg monarchy in Austria, I think, is a helpful reminder of this. Your entrance into the presence of God isn't conditioned on your lineage. You didn't have to come from a monarchy. It's not conditioned on whether or not you were a king or queen on this earth. It's not conditioned on your achievements or accomplishments or good works. What qualifies you is the recognition that you are a sinful, mortal human being who is despaired of saving himself or herself. Entrance into the presence of God is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, our statement of faith at Trinity doesn't prescribe specific details about the doctrine of election. There are godly, earnest Christians who will disagree on the details within the bounds of acceptable orthodoxy. So we should be able to be free to disagree and belong to the same church. But I would be disingenuous if I stood up here and presented them all as if I believed that they were equally true. So to the best of my ability to discern... I believe these verses, in harmony with the testimony of Scripture elsewhere, teach that God elects some to salvation unconditionally, according to his own good purposes, that is to say, not according to their works, including any act of faith that might God, God might look into the future and, and find. If you have questions about this, or you just want to think about it in more depth, please check out the video and the handouts that we did. It was a five-week class that we did in January earlier this year, on the doctrines of salvation. We'll think about it in more depth uh, there. And we'll be coming to this topic again more next Sunday as Romans 9 continues. If hearing that God elects some and not others to salvation, not based on their works, sounds unjust, even for a moment, well, then it seems like you're reading the passage correctly. It seems like you're actually tracking with the argument because Paul anticipates that question in the very next verse. It's verse 14 of chapter 9. And he replies, of course, that there is no injustice on God's part. That's next Sunday, Lord willing. Let me just try to recap what we've, what we've covered here. God promised 
at the end of chapter 8, that nothing will separate those whom he calls from the love of Christ. That is a sure promise. Okay, well, what about Israel? They were God's elect people, and yet they didn't believe in the Messiah. Did God's promises, did his word, did it fail? No, Paul says, because from the beginning, God didn't promise that every physical child of Abraham would be saved. Only the spiritual children of Abraham, who are born not of the will of man, but of the will of God. And we know from elsewhere in Scripture that the children of the spiritual children of Abraham are those who believe in Christ. God's just purposes and promises in salvation do not fail. We know uh, that Esau was more concerned to satisfy his empty belly in the moment rather than to, to wait and receive God's blessings that would come later. And he ended up being described as a godless man. But let's also be honest about Jacob, shall we? Jacob ended up a con man. He was a swindler. He was tricksy, always out for his own personal gain. And when his brother Esau was hungry, Jacob prepared a meal for him. He prepared this meal in order to trick him out of his birthright. He took on the identity of Esau. He even dressed in his robes in order to try to steal his father's blessing selfishly for himself. And yet Jesus, the true and better Israel, took on the identity of his brothers and wore our unrighteousness to take away our curse so that we might share in his father's blessing. And he prepares a meal for us in the Lord's Supper in order to help us share in the benefits that he received and wants to distribute to us.
Now you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul Ministries on podcast. You can easily play this week or past week's programs, or you can even download them to your vice in only a few minutes. Try to search for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries at your iTunes store now. following program is called Equipping the Saints. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundstedt, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. Well, what would you share with believers that you loved dearly if it was the last time that you were going to see them? If you knew for some reason you were going to die or you would never see them again? What about a shepherd of and a flock? What would a shepherd say to a flock that he would never see again? Certainly there would be those things that would be personal and those things in terms of the relationship they have. What would one's last words be? Well, what about the Apostle Peter? Indeed, we know in Scripture, having denied the Lord three times, that after the Lord had risen from the dead, he restored Peter in the context of love. And he commanded him to feed his sheep. And Peter had been faithful to that calling. And now the Lord had made it clear to him that the laying aside of his earthly dwelling was imminent. Chapter 1, verse 14. Peter is going to be at the Lord very soon. And so these are his last words inspired by the Spirit to the flock, the body of Christ. And it's within these last words we come to the last words within the last words of this letter, Peter sharing to the body of Christ. You'll notice, although he shares throughout this letter he's going to be at the Lord, there's not a lot of personal stuff. It's more so what is most important to believers. He shares certainly that they're beloved, but he shares the most important thing. 
Now today I believe we're going to see within these last words, these final commands of Peter, how not to shipwreck your walk with Jesus Christ. If you think about a shipwreck, a ship's cruising along fine, all of a sudden hits a rock, whatever it might be, runs aground, the ship is no longer able to function or it might even sink. We're going to see how not to shipwreck your walk with Jesus Christ because there are a lot of shipwrecked believers in the body of Christ You know, we saw earlier that many would follow the sensuality of the false guys. Many believers would get caught up in those things, and certainly the Lord God does not want that to happen. So we're going to see final commands from a loving shepherd. Turn with me in your Bibles to the last portion of 2 Peter chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 15 through 18 through the end. Now we have seen, as I've mentioned before, that Peter is writing to believers those who have the same faith as the apostles have. You see, if you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, you have the same faith the apostles had. A faith in Jesus Christ that brought about forgiveness of sins. And we've seen simply that this book is about growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and then being protected from threats to our relationship with Jesus Christ, which is based on His Word. We saw that we have been given everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him. We have His precious and magnificent promises. We have His Word which He uses to make us like His Son. And within that, we see that we should be growing in that relationship with the Lord God, that we would be neither useless or unfruitful in the true knowledge of Him and our relationship with Him. And Peter is always ready to remind them, always ready to remind them to stir them and to stir us up by way of reminder that we may be able to call these things to mind after his departure. And then at the end of chapter 1, as he reminds them, he shows them the absolute reliability of the written word, the surety of the scriptures. And we see that in the last letters of those apostles. We see in the apostle Paul, all scriptures inspired by God and profitable for him. We'll see every good work. And in Peter's last letter, he affirms the profitability of the scriptures and that they are not from man but from God and that we do well to heed it. We do beautifully if we obey and respond to God via his word. And after that, we saw in chapters 2 and 3 that there are threats to the Word of God. Peter could have said, hey, this is the last time I'm talking to you, and you know, so-and-so, I miss you here, I'll miss you that. No, he didn't say that. He gets to the reality of what is most important before he goes to the Lord. And as a faithful shepherd who was charged to feed the sheep, he not only shares what's the most important thing, that we grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus, but that there will be threats to the means in which we grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus, which is the Word of God. There will be those who arise among you, chapter 2. They will twist and pervert God's Word. They will follow after their own lust. They will enjoy and delight in deceiving believers. But you can spot them by their deeds. They are springs without water. They portray themselves as those who will feed you spiritually in your walk with Jesus. But ultimately you get nothing. There's no water. Because they're actually manipulating you by your own desires to think that you're following Jesus, but for their own benefit as you follow their ways. And in their greed they will exploit you, obviously as we will see with false words. They portray themselves to be those who would feed you, but they're not. They're greedy fakers, as we saw, on their way to hell. They knew the truth of God. They knew the truth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But they have rejected that internally, and they've gone back, as even the passage talks about, their own vomit, like a dog that returns to his vomit, ultimately going back to fulfill their own desires because they're not saved. 
but yet they know what it looks like, and they use that to manipulate and deceive people. But their destruction is sure. Their place in black darkness is reserved for them. God does not miss a beat. And then we came to chapter 3, where we saw Peter continues to share that he is reminding them. He's reminding them of the truth, first of all, that came from the holy prophets, and then the commandment of our Lord and Savior that came through his apostles that we would be knowing something, knowing this, first of all, that mockers will come in the last days. There are going to be those who actually mock God's word. They will, whether subtly or whether outright directly, they will mock God's word and they will share with people, where is the promise of his coming? Everything's the same since the world began. Nothing's changed. They're going to try to get you to look at things that you can observe rather than believing the truth of God. We saw that, but yet we know Peter makes it clear that this present heavens and earth by his word are being reserved, verse 7 of chapter 3, kept for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. We saw in chapter 3, verse 10, that this is the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. God is going to judge sinful man and sinners, but God is patient, not willing for any to perish. We should not let this one fact escape our notice. The bad guys let the truth of what God has already said and done willingly escape their notice, but we should not let this escape our notice that God's not on our timetable. A day is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like a day. But God is patient towards us, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God is a gracious God, but yet the promise of his coming will be fulfilled. And within that promise, there's a lot of events over some period of time, seven years we see. Also, then we have the millennium, thousand-year reign of Christ. Then we have judgment. Then we have this first heavens and earth being destroyed and a new heavens and new earth. God is not slow about his promise, but we look forward to something. We look forward to a new heavens and earth where righteousness dwells. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more death. We look forward to that. And we desire Christ to come. And within that, we see that we are to be looking for that. But yet we ought to be living differently now if this is the reality of what God is going to do towards sin and sinners, having sent His Son to die for our sins. We should be diligent then to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless. That means we should be walking in a way in which we are walking in holy conduct and godliness, walking with him by his spirit, through his power, trusting in him so that we will be found, we'll be found by him in a way that is glorifying to him. And not only are we to be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, verse 14, we are also to regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation. The delay in Christ's coming to bring forth judgment is because he is saving people. It is salvation. The only reason he hasn't come, the only reason we're not ultimately in eternity with him on our way to that new heavens and earth is because he is saving People And so we should be looking forward and hastening the day of the Lord, this day in which he comes, right? And so with that, we have these last two commands here. Be diligent to be discovered and found by Jesus in peace, spotless and blameless. And then regard the time in which we are in when Christ hasn't come yet as salvation. And it's from this point we come to the end of the chapter, which is connected to what I've just summarized. So again... Turn your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at verses 15 to 18, and we're going to see how not to shipwreck your walk with Christ. 
going to go back just a verse here, but I've kind of summarized what we've seen already. Verse 14, chapter 3 of Second Peter. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. And regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation. And now we start our passage. Just as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which some things are hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort as they do the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, lest being carried away by the error of unprincipled men, you fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Tremendous closing to the book. The most important things he can say, it is his final words within his final words. And as we've been seeing here, he's pointing out the reality of false teachers and the danger of those, those who would affect and twist the word of God or distort the word of God. And that we need to be aware because we could be tripped up. Believers, beloved, could be tripped up. There will be many that come into the church. And we're going to see today some examples of what's going on in the church these days. That true believers are getting caught up and being tripped up in their walk because of bad guys sharing wicked things or distorting the word of God. So with this in mind, we're going to see that he finishes with two imperative commands for us. Two commands. He doesn't just say, love you all, see you later. He does say, beloved. He gives us two commands that are very important. One is to guard ourselves. Be on the guard. The other one is to grow. Is to grow. We are to guard and to grow. That is what we need to do as we're going to see in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Let's take a look first at that first command. Notice we're continually commanded to be on guard against those who will twist the word of God so that we will not fall. We know beforehand that in the church, bad guys will omit, lessen, mock, distort the word, especially the difficult passages. Notice the middle of verse 15. Just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. As also in all his letters, speaking in them of things in which some things are hard to understand, in which the untaught and unstable distort as they do the rest of the scriptures. And then we'll see it's to their own destruction. So here, Peter refers to the apostle Paul. Now we don't know specifically why, the exact reason why he shares him by name. We can speculate that maybe some were discrediting what Paul had written as scripture. He's going to show that it truly is. But Peter's going to share the reality that bad guys twist and torture the word of God for their own gain. And not only do they do it to what Peter's saying, they will do it to what Paul has said, and specifically the difficult passages as they do the rest of the scriptures. And Peter says, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote. Now, specifically, initially, he's referring to what Peter had been writing about. Peter had been writing about the coming of Christ. Peter had been writing about mockers who had come. Peter had been writing about God's patience before destruction, right? His salvation. And he says, just as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote you. Obviously, we're coming into the middle of the verse, but he's referring to what he's spoken to throughout chapter 3. And what's interesting, I want to make some 
interesting observations how he describes Paul. He says, our beloved brother, Paul. Peter was a mature believer in Jesus Christ, led by the Spirit. He had grown up in Christ. You may or may not know, but the Apostle Paul had actually reproved Peter in Galatians chapter 2 publicly. You would think Peter might have been offended or been harder to win than a strong city. That's not the case. Peter is a godly brother in Christ who obviously received the Apostle Paul's reproof and had no issues towards Paul. He said, our beloved brother Paul, as he has written you. And so within that we see the Apostle Peter sharing our beloved brother Paul. And he speaks of me, he says, just as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you. He's saying the same things I wrote to you are just like what Paul wrote to you. Just like what Paul wrote to you. And notice something very interesting. Let's look at verses 15 through 16. I want you to notice this. Just as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, we'll look at that in a minute, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, or you could say the word epistle, that's what's being used here in Greek, speaking in them of things in which some are hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do what? The rest of the scriptures. If you look at this sentence, the Apostle Peter is certainly equating his writing, and he is equating the writing of Paul, all his letters, as the scriptures. The term scriptures means written word, graphe. It's what we've seen. And he is saying that what Paul wrote is the scriptures. It's the word of God. He says, the Apostle Paul, our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you. You see, Paul didn't just think up stuff and write it down and send letters to the churches. The Apostle Paul was inspired by the Spirit to bring forth the word of God as an apostle, laying forth what part of the foundation, Jesus Christ being the cornerstone. Let's take a look at a few passages. Look at Galatians chapter 1. Galatians 1, verse 11. Galatians 1.11 For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And then turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. See, Peter says in our passage, according to the wisdom given to him. Paul was given wisdom from God. He was given wisdom and ultimately the word through that. 1 Corinthians 15, 3. For I delivered to you, this is Paul writing, of first importance of what I also received. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Turn back a little bit in 1 Corinthians to chapter 2. Chapter 2. The Apostle Paul comes basically saying, hey, we've got nothing to boast in but Christ. And the way we came to you, Corinthians, we were in fear and trembling. We didn't come with superior speech speaking the testimony of God. We didn't come like you would expect and exalt as you are. He didn't say it, but he says, we didn't speak wisdom of man, but that your faith would rest on man. Notice what he says in verse 6 of chapter 2. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom, which is predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. 
But just as it is written, things which I have not seen and ears not heard and which have not entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. We see here that Paul brought forth God's wisdom. It was God's word. We know from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, he thanks and constantly thanks God that the Thessalonians didn't accept what they received as the word of men, but the word of God which is what it really is. Back to our passage in Second Peter, and as you're going there, put your finger in chapter 3 and go back to chapter 1. Second Peter 1, verse 20. This is what Peter says. He says, But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Spirit spoke from God. And then back to our passage, middle of verse 15, chapter 3. Just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. God brought forth his word through the apostle Paul, and his word pointed to the realities of what Peter is saying here too. There's no contradictions between what Peter says and what Paul says. They are from the same God by the same Spirit. And the Apostle Paul certainly relayed the reality for godly living in the midst of God's coming judgment and the future that believers have in Jesus Christ. Let me give you one example. He says, just as our beloved brother Paul shared, go to Romans chapter 13. We have the exhortation in light of the day almost being gone to live differently as believers. Because of what God is doing and what he will do, it should motivate us to be aware of our actions and then trust and obey the Lord and allow him to function through us. Romans chapter 13, verse 10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. And this do, knowing the time, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone. This night of sin and darkness, using metaphoric language, and the day is at hand. The day in which righteousness dwells, where Christ is on the throne. And he says here, Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity or in sensuality, not in strife or jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you, Paul wrote of the same thing, holiness and righteous behavior in light of Christ's coming. You can see this also in 1 Thessalonians 5 and in other passages that Paul has written this truth. The reality of Christ coming in judgment, but also coming to bring in and usher in a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells should motivate us to live differently and to look for that coming, to hasten, Lord Jesus, come. So with that in mind... Notice also back in our passage that he now moves from this point to sharing what Paul wrote to share the reality that bad guys are going to manipulate all the scriptures and they're going to go after the difficult ones like they do in what Paul wrote. Verse 16, chapter 3. 
as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things. That's what I shared, right? Of these things, in which some things are hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort as they do also the rest of the scriptures. There are portions within Paul's writing that Peter reveals that are difficult to understand. He didn't say you can't understand it. He said they are difficult. Some things are very clear. The Spirit of God illumines those things and helps us understand. Some things are difficult. They take study. It takes work and dependence on the Lord Jesus to understand the truth of God. And within the Apostle Paul, there are some things that he wrote that Peter says are hard to understand. ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.